Well, we're really glad that you're here. It might be helpful for those folks who haven't met you yet. Uh, just tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, Steed, and your upbringing and your uh, faith formation. No, no big thing. Yeah, it's just like, yeah. <laughs> and do so in one minute. Yeah. Okay, I'll try to do one minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, five, maybe six years down, 17. Yeah, five years, 17, six years. Yeah, this year will be, will be six, will be six years. And during that time, because I start when I moved to Chicago, I used to attend the Hyde Park Woodlawn site. And um, up until the pandemic, I would drive there every week. And then when the pandemic came, I mean, like, why, why am I driving that far? And I started coming here once things opened back up. I am a lifelong Methodist, grew up in the Methodist church in the Caribbean, and our roots go back to the British Methodist church. We, um, we, we were the recipients of both the imperialization and, and evangelization of the British. So we got the political and the, um, and the spiritual, if you want to call it that. Um, and I got ordained in the Methodist Church in the Caribbean and served in the Method United Methodist Church. I served in New York um, in two churches. And since then, I have been in what we call in the United Methodist Church extension ministries. And my extension ministry has, for the large part, been in education, in higher education, in theo theology, religious studies. Yeah. So as you think back on your own life and your own faith life, what are there, is there a moment or two that really drew you to uh, biblical studies and for you to decide that this is the area that I want to really focus on? Yes and no. Um, the, the yes part is a story I tell quite often. Maybe some people would have heard it a lot. You probably didn't. I, just, I wrote about it recently. It was published in, a, in an article. So I think my, my inquiry and, and curiosity goes back to the age of 13. So age 13, I am trying to answer for myself the question, what is the fruit that they ate in the garden? Mm. So I go to Genesis and I read over and over and over again. I read over and over again, trying to find what I know to be the fruit. And I don't see anything. It just says the fruit. Mm. Of course, what I'm looking for is apple. Yeah. And it's not this, I, you know, uh, but the difference was at 13, I was reading a real Bible, not a children's Bible. And in the children's Bible, they have this very popular rendition of it. We'll show, if, if they don't say the word, they will have the pictures and it will be, be an apple. But when you read actually in the Bible, it wasn't like, what on earth is this? Why is there this big difference? So 13, that starts a big curiosity for me. Fast forward a few years later, I'm taking an advanced English class and we're reading John Milton's Paradise Lost. And what I recognize is Milton's rendering of Paradise Lost, of, of Genesis rather, in Paradise Lost, is much more familiar than the actual text of Genesis. So that Milton, in some ways, uh, helps to promote this very popular reading of Genesis that is not actually the, the book itself. So that opens up for me a, a world of curiosity. Where else are these slippages between what's actually written in the Bible and the way in which people come to understand it and the stories we tell about the Bible? They're not necessarily the same thing. And, and of course, some of those are ways in which 
we free ourselves from certain aspects of the biblical text, but there are other ways in which we, we, we use those slippages to enforce particular views, mm. Confer- you know, saying the Bible says, when actually, you know, it doesn't really say. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Have, um, so just, if you take nothing away today, you can uh, stump one of your friends and ask them, what fruit did, uh, you know, Adam and Eve eat in the garden? And they'll say apple and you'll say wrong. And, <laughs> and you'll impress your friends that way. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes when people read the Bible, at least sometimes when I think about reading the Bible, sometimes people will put it in generally two categories. They'll either talk about reading the Bible devotionally, and so they are seeking uh, inspiration or comfort or guidance, or they might read it, um, I don't know, academically or scholastically, where they're really trying to get a sense of what's underneath uh, the word, the slippages that you sit and note, or when was it written, or what is the literature like, things like that. So can you talk about um, are those kind of false categories or how do you read the scriptures in, in taking at least those, and maybe there are other categories too? Oh, I, I, I think all, all are um, allowable. Remember, what we're dealing with is literature that's almost 2,000 years old that people have been doing different things with for thousands of years. Yeah. So it should have multiple purposes rather than one. Um, of course, I think part of the problem tends to be where, where people are led to believe that your thing is the thing yeah. or that there is only one thing. So, so, so there, is, there is room for us to have these different entry points into, into, bibli- into biblical texts. Um, and, and sometimes, of course, we have to recognize that there are limits. So yes, you could read it devotionally. There are some parts that are much more given to devotional reading than others. The book of Numbers may not be the kind of thing you want to read, right? Waking, wake, waking up for, for devotional purposes. Well, you know, Psalms will do a better job at that. Um, there are some, there's some material that will really get us into um, providing an understanding of some historical data. So, you know, we, we check, say, for instance, between the books of Kings, the two books of Kings and the books of Chronicles. They try to do something historical. Um, so... So there, so there are different things you could do. You could do with it, recognizing, yes, I see the limits, and that what other people might be doing are all, is also legitimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can I ask for you personally? Yeah. How are, are you able to read it, like sort of the Psalms, and and find something that the Spirit is working in your heart as you're reading it? But then there's also uh, the academic, the biblical scholar who. Like if the psalm says a uh, song of David, and you might think, well, David probably didn't write this. Uh, so how how do you have you gotten to the point where you're able to kind of put some of that aside and really sense what the Spirit is saying to you in the text? No, I I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can. I, I mean, uh, but but I'll tell you what 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 I would do is, in other words, I could I could ignore a psalm of David and know this this has nothing to do with David. And, but, but for me, the issue is not that it has any kind of value because David wrote it. Mm. It has value on its own. Mm. And, and so, for instance, I will say the same thing with, with some of the, the letters of Paul. You know, people want to, 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 to say Paul wrote this because they want it to be authoritative. Yeah. They want it to take on a particular kind of value. The, the, the material has value on its own, whether, whether or not. Um, 
this this particular important person's name is attached to it. So, so I can't let that go, but I could get past that and start to read. And, and like I said, I think I think some things create a lot more value. Um, the words themselves for me might not necessarily have the same kind of spiritual value that they will have for someone. But what what I tend to go after is I am in conversation with someone, someone from a different place, a different age, a different a different um, culture, all of those different things. And that person is trying to communicate to me a life experience. Mm. And so I'm getting insight, either, either positive or negative, right? Mm. Because sometimes the texts are meant for, um, uh, can easily apply to a broad cross-section of people. And other times they're very narrow and they're, they're extremely partisan. And, and so what I, I experience is this conversation with, with a long-lost friend, if you want to call it that, yeah. who I've never met, who's saying stuff to me and who is saying, here's, here's, how, here's how I believe. Mm. Here is, here's how this situation forced me to think, to act, to advocate. Mm. And, it, and, and like I said, I might be guided and say, yeah, I agree with you. Or I disagree with you, mm-hmm. and I'm drawing insight from that from my own context and time. I think for some, especially who grew up in a, generally speaking, a more conservative tradition, and the thought of reading passage and in your mind thinking, "I disagree with this," for some people they think, "How could you do that? I, I would never be able to say I disagree with this." Yeah. Can you think about a time with one of those first moments when you disagreed with it and you thought, "This is okay. This is okay to wrestle with the text." Uh, or if not, what are the first times? Like, how do you counsel people now who struggle with the wrestling or disagreement of the... Uh, oh, yeah. well, well that, that was a lot of my teaching. <laughs> because most students will come in with that, with that particular position. And, and I would hear, oh, you, 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 the thing is no longer valuable for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so when I, when I say, well, Isaiah wasn't writing about Jesus. They'll say, oh, Christmas is no longer the same. I thought you, <laughs> you got rid of that. Um, Oh, you know, so so I, I have to walk people through those issues in in teaching. I'm trying to remember at what point I I, I did, and, and and I can't. I mean, one of the you know to, to answer your question, one of the striking memories for me was reading um, uh, Howard Thurman describe his grandmother, who who couldn't read, and she had him read the Bible for for her. But she knew well enough that there were parts of the Bible. I mean, and Howard Thurman's grandmother was either enslaved or born just after the period of the end, the end of slavery. So she never wanted to hear anything like slaves obey your masters in the law, which was attributed to Paul. And so even though she couldn't read, she, she would say to him, do not read anything from Paul. Mm. Read, read about Jesus. You know, so, so. This was for me that there is this long tradition from for a number of persons for whom the Bible has been a complicated book, who have decided and had determined, no, there were things we had to say no to mm. because they were not life giving. So, so that was one of my first sort of awakenings I could you know attribute to someone else. There probably was something in my own, I think, and and that was an affirmation of a path I had already started on. 
I can't remember specifically. Yeah. But but that that memory of him relating about his his grandmother. Yeah. Is a striking one for me. Yeah. And think, yeah. Thinking about what yeah what what is life giving and what and what isn't. Yeah. And talking it, we're gonna bring a little bit of the kind of Wesleyan uh, part of this into this. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about the book called Reclaiming the Wesleyan Vision by a, an author named Paul Chilcote. And he says this, so this is talking about the head and heart. And he writes, refusing to separate the head from the heart, Wesley's life was characterized by a winsome synthesis of knowledge and piety, intellectual rigor, and disciplined zeal. And so uh, Wesley was, as you noted in our email exchange this week, uh, he, a quote that is said, I'm a man of one book. So can you talk a little bit about your sense of Wesley uh, and and that quote and how he uh, used uh, scripture in his own life? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a striking claim that he makes. I, I want to be a man of one book or I am a man of one book. And this is the man who had hundreds of books <laughs> stacked in his own. And is that thing? And, and who was a voracious reader and a gatherer of knowledge and information. And... And for what, what Wesley means by that is, I could read anything and I must read everything and I must gather as much knowledge as I possibly could, but I'll always come back to this one book being, being the Bible. Um, and and that, that I've always found it a striking thing because I do know of people who would make the claim, I'm a person of one book and refuse to read anything else as if the Bible on its own is sufficient to, as a source of knowledge, information, history, and so on, and, and that it, it will satisfy all of the information you need in terms of science, politics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, that, that those positions have been, for me, quite untenable, of yeah. asking the Bible to do more than it was intended to do. It cannot speak very definitively to the modern conditions that we are faced with in terms of, hey, we're living in a digital age. It didn't. Okay. So, so Wesley was this in this way trying to to supplement his his biblical knowledge with a deep awareness of the world. Yeah. And I think that's very important for us. That that the Bible is not a way of displacing knowledge and information that we could get in other places. Yeah. And I, I think it speaks to the text that we read today. That sense that Jesus is saying to love God with all of ourselves, including our minds including of our hearts, and, and Wesley certainly is, I, I think, an example uh, of that. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, and we touched on this a little, I think there's some folks who may be somewhat new to faith, or they didn't necessarily grow up, uh, they knew of the Bible, or maybe it wasn't encouraged to, to be read, or maybe it was put on a shelf somewhere in, in somebody's home, um, but they're intimidated by it. I mean, there's a lot of words in this thing, uh, with you know, little numbers and big words and so how do you counsel people who are somewhat new to reading it and how do you kind of help them to begin to engage with the text? Yeah, that, that's a hard thing. Well, the first thing will be, let's find an English translation mm -hmm. that works well. An English translation where the words are much more familiar. So, so please don't ever start by reading the King James Version, right? Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's English from 400 years ago or more. And, and it's not a kind of English that we understand. Uh, I think there's some people who believe that that's the way God spoke. Um, it wasn't? It, no. Okay. <laughs> right? 
well, and here's the other secret. God, <laughs> God didn't even speak in English. If God ever spoke. <laughs> and so that's the other thing. Why I would say let's. This is going viral, I think, today. <laughs> so yeah. Let's 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 do the go with a with a you know accessible English translation precisely because you're reading material that was translated from original texts of Greek and Hebrew, so so that the material that you're receiving is not first hand. Mm -hmm. It's coming through from other from other hands, from other writers, from other perspectives. So so that and, and I think that's important so people can set their expectations accordingly. And then the other thing I would I would say, just read stories. And that's what attracted me to the biblical text, why I was, you know, trying to figure out what's going on in Genesis chapter chapter three, because there are lots of stories, um, and and that gets you to into a, a particular creative um, world where where you you don't have to invest, and I, and I say stories without without the expectations that these are history. Mm. Read them as experiences that human beings had mm. trying to make sense of the world. Yeah. Um, so, so read those rather than reading the, the more dogmatic aspects, the ones that tell you this is what you do, this is what you don't do. Because I think that's a lot of people's perceptions that basically the Bible is going to tell you, here's what you do, here's what you don't do. Yeah. Um, and you'll be amazed that that's not all a lot of what is in the Bible, is, right? There's some sections that, it, that, that do that, but there are whole sections that just don't. Um, and then there are others who are you know, poetic, right, and um, uh, lyrical in some in, in some ways. So start with the stories and then work your way up. Yeah, and and through the stories, try to figure out who are the who are people, who is God for these people, and I think each story will reveal a different answer to the question of who is God for for the for the characters or for the person who is writing and telling the story. Um, rather than thinking, oh, there's only one God and everybody experiences God in this one way. The stories will give you that diversity of experience, uh, uh, those, uh, that the, 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 the sense of how God is going to show up very differently in the lives of people. Yeah. We've talked to this, about this a little bit. I appreciate you saying that too, for all of us to engage, recognizing that this is our lens, this is our reading, this is our experience of imagining a conversation with the writer and sensing how the Holy Spirit, but recognizing it's just our lens. And so how I read it is going to be different than how you read it, different from anybody else's experience. And so can you talk a little bit about that, that in the way that people read it, and sometimes they assume, as you noted, this is the way everybody sees it. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and I, I'm glad you, you're following up with this because what I'm not suggesting is I read it this way and therefore I am right <laughs> and you are wrong and you are wrong and you are wrong. Um, or I read it this way and I'm just going to hold on to it and I don't have to care anything about what yeah. you, what you say. I, I, you know, it, it is ultimately a community experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 and one of the things, like, I, as I said earlier, I think my association with the Bible is to become a part of this this um, trans-historical community, that there were people before me hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, 
asking some of the same questions, trying to deal with, with life issues, who handed on to me these ideas that I'm, that I'm reading now. And so even as I have my perspective, I want that to be joined with community, yeah. with others, and hearing what other people are saying, and, and for that to be enriched and changed, sharpened, through conversations with, 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 with others. So it's not just simply, let me just sit in my little corner yeah. and claim my right, you know, speak my truth, but that is something that then is a, is a gift to this, to this community of believers and this community of seekers and community of people who are just, just trying to live. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to skip over. Do you, can, do you mind giving some couple of recommendations for good translations uh, for folks to read? Oh, 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 oh. Well, two that I will give. Uh, the, the, the very first one, else I will not get paid. <laughs> um, the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition. Um, and because I worked, I worked on, on, on the book of Jeremiah on this. So this was the, the New Revised Standard Version is uh, late 90s trans, English translation. And it was up, updated recently, like last year. Um, and why I say I won't get paid? Because no, the Society of Biblical Literature took on that task. Okay. And, and we just completed it. And almost anybody who is publishing a Bible now is bringing that version out. And then the Common English Bible is also one that I know at UVC that's, that's used, used quite a bit. Um, there are several scholars who have a few issues with some, with some translations. And when we have issues with translations, it's, it's likely one word in a sentence rather than the entire sentence. Um, so those, those, those tend to be, to be quite good. Um, why I would say those is that those are closer to the original languages. There's a, there's a thing about Bible translation, and I could go into, go into detail on it. But you want one that is going to, depending on what you're doing, one that will, will get you fairly close to the original underlying languages. You could get some that are very far away and that are very comprehensible, but they are not necessarily clear. Um, they're more um, amplifications, sometimes they call them. They're more in the way, of, like, like the message. The message is, is, is not pretending to be a translation. It is like, we want you to understand something, and we'll tell you it in, in a condensed way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so for those, we, uh, on Sundays, when you see the, on the screen, and you may have gone to a bookstore before, um, and so, like there's a whole thing of Bibles, and it's a little intimidating because they also have all these different translations and versions. And so um, there's a website, BibleGateway.com. There might yep. be other websites mm -hmm. too where you can kind of experiment a bit to see how do different translations interpret uh, different texts. But I use the Common English Bible in my kind of morning devotions, mm -hmm. and then I use the NRSV UE mm -hmm. uh, in, in kind of doing some more, uh, what we call a fancy word, exegesis, where you're mm -hmm. trying to get to know a little bit about what's behind the text. So I'd encourage all of you to kind of really uh, explore and ask those questions. I think we're called both by Jesus and by Wesley and by so many others uh, to do that. So let's, uh, you mentioned the Society of uh, Biblical Literature. Uh, for those who don't know, what exactly is the SBL and how might it connect to their own lives? Yeah, well, 
it'll be good because that that one of one of my tasks. The, the, the SBL is a nearly 150 year old organization. It will be 150 in 2030. Um, that was founded as a gathering place for the development of biblical knowledge and related related fields. So it's largely um, consists of people who are in academic fields in in, in the bi in in in, biblic in biblical studies. So. We have close to over 7,000 members from different parts of the world, most of them from the U United States, but we have about a third of our membership in different areas around, around the world. So it's, a, it's an academic organization, a scholarly organization uh, dedicated to the pursuit of all things related to the, to the Bible. So we'll go from devotional stuff to historical stuff, mm -hmm. to archaeology, to cultural pieces, all of those different types of things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. So, again, I wanted hopefully taking away from this, um, God has given us a beautiful minds to ask questions and to dig and to and to wonder and to see different parts of scriptures that might contradict each other. And why is that? And begin uh, to explore that. And you mentioned when I first went to seminary, sometimes that when you first kind of see something like, oh, I didn't know that, and now what do I do here? But the more you, for me anyway, I think for others too, the more you dig and ask and, and wrestle, I think for me, the more you love it mm -hmm. uh, and the, the deeper that it can grow in your own faith life. I would assume that's, that's the case for yeah. you as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, Steve, mm -hmm. thank you so much for sharing uh, your story uh, and helping us to kind of bring together the heart of the head on our own faith lives as well. So can we thank Steve for being with us today?